1: honored if you would join us. Well, welcome to the Rebel Podcast. Uh, As you know, um, this is uh, the Rebel Podcast, and I'm uh, P. Nate, and I am joined today by a very special guest, one of my favorite new authors that I just discovered recently. I'm joined by uh, Pastor C.R. Wiley. Pastor, how are you today? I'm well, Nate. How are you? I'm great. I'm super excited for this conversation. I recently read your book, so C.R. Wiley, I'm going to call him Chris. I know C.R., if anybody's looking for him online, he goes by C.R. Wiley. I'm going to call him Chris because he gave me permission to do so for this interview, so it's a little uh, less formal. But Pastor Chris is one of the three hosts for the Theology Podcast. You're the pastor of uh, Presbyterian Church in Manchester, You have written several books. The two that I've read this year are uh, Man of the House and Household in the War for the Cosmos. You write all over the place. You're at Grace Agenda this past year. Thanks for being on here. Is there anything else that you uh, would like to highlight or where people can find you online?
0: Well, yeah, I can be found at Crwiley.com. That's easy. And I'm working right now on a book on Tom Bombadil, and I'm pretty excited about that. I'm actually going over to Oxford next month to do some work
1: on that. So I have a funny story on that. I heard on a recent episode of your Theology podcast, you're doing one of this when everybody kind of went around and talked about the books that they're working on. And I heard that you're writing one on Tom Bombadil. And it reminded me when I went to see Lord of the Rings in the theaters... I went with a—at uh, the time, he was 12 years old. I was a youth pastor at the time, so I brought him. He's one of the junior high kids, and he was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And so we watched the whole first episode, and you know, there's some romantic scene in the movie that they kind of elaborated for the movie that wasn't in the book, and the theater's quiet at a moment when the, the, when the audio is low, and he says— we gave up Tom Bombadil for this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he's right. He's right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that book. I'm excited about it. But what I wanted to talk about today was primarily your book, Household and the War for the Cosmos, which was uh, published by Canon Press. That came out earlier this year?
0: Yeah, it came out in June of 2019. So we're in 2020 now. So yeah, but, uh, yeah less than a year ago.
1: Yeah. And it was phenomenal. And so thank you so much for it. I listened to a talk that you did at Grace Agenda called uh, Make Men Pious Again, and I appreciated the title. I thought it was witty, but why don't you start with a key component to the book, and that is piety. What is piety? And how is it different from, for those of us who even read the Puritans, we're used to the word. But what I so appreciate about the book was that you said that even by the time it had found Whitfield and, and some of the other Puritans, it had kind of lost some of its meaning. So when you use the term piety and wanting to make men pious again, how do you mean that?
0: I mean it in the way that all of the uh, Christians in the first century would have understood it. <laughs> kind of put it simple. <laughs> so, uh, Pius, which is the Latin that uh, we get the word piety from. Pius was a uh, social virtue that was a very important one in the uh, years of the Republic. And then, obviously, I'm referring to the Roman Republic at this point. But by the time that we come to the empire, which would be the first century where the church is growing and getting to evangelize throughout the empire, there was a revival of piety that had been encouraged by the emperor. So Caesar Augustus comes into power after the civil wars, and the place is a mess. The empire is in bad shape. And so he wants to recover what's been lost, which was this social virtue known as piety. Piety wasn't, you know, a little old lady with her crocheting and, you know, her, uh, you know, my utmost for his highest on her lap, you know, in her <laughs> with her cookies and tea. It was a, a very virile virtue. It was a virtue that was exemplified in the persona of Aeneas. And if a person is familiar with Aeneas, they probably know about it because of the, uh, the Aeneid, the, uh, the great epic poem by Virgil. But the reason why it was important to Romans is because Aeneas was considered the father of the Roman people. And as folks who know the story are familiar, the Aeneid's about Aeneas fleeing Troy with his family. So he's a Trojan. So the Romans believed that they were descended from the Trojans. I don't know if most folks understand that or or sort of think in those terms. But what that meant for them is that they had the same kind of epic heritage that the Greeks had but they were the adversaries. (laughs) Right. But the appellation that Virgil uses throughout the Aeneid for Aeneas is pious Aeneas. Now, what piety meant for a Roman was doing your duty. It was paying your debts. It was uh, recognizing your benefactors. That would be your parents, your leaders in in the civic world. But uh, it also meant your debt to the gods. So... Aeneas, when he flees Troy, he carries his father out on his back. His father is is a cripple, and he's got his son Ascanius. So you've got Ascanius by the hand, and he's got Anchises, his father, on his back, and Creusa, his wife, is following behind. He's got a sword in one hand, and, and it's a beautiful picture. Of, you know, the father, you know, the son, you know, the grandson. All of all of them, you know, together. And this was so important for the Romans that they had it on their coinage. You can find coins from the empire with an image of Aeneas with his father on his back with the word Pius. And so the idea was do your duty, do your duty to your family, do your duty to the community, do your duty to the emperor, do your duty to the gods, and everything's going to work great. That was the message.
1: And I want to tease this out a little bit, but I do think that the way you go out about in the book kind of summarizing the Aeneid and, and kind of laying the foundation, and the reason I think this is important is because when we think of piety, you're right, we all have that image of you know the little old lady who uh, is you know, the faithful churchgoer at the back who's handing Jesus calling to everybody, in the, but it had a whole lot more to it, a breadth and a depth to it than, than just the sort of the people who are really faithful with their quiet time. Right, really faithful with their kind of personal, mystical relationship with God. And and what I so appreciated about the book and and some of the talks I've heard you do over the last year is sort of this expanding our view of the Christian faith beyond this sort of personal one-on-one relationship with with Jesus, because the first century Christian culture was a household culture. It had to do with the whole cosmos and the whole culture. And I think that's so important and something that's been lost. So I want to get into all that, but just really sketch out quickly. So Aeneas is the, if I remember correctly, the the cousin of Paris and Hector, right, who are the, the Trojan heroes. Hector kind of gets beaten up by Achilles and, and dragged around the city. Paris is the guy who stole the girl who launched a thousand ships. And so Aeneas is a hero of Troy who, once he saw that the city was lost, was beckoned to save his family. Right. And yeah. so... And so, do you want to pick up the story there and kind of show us the parallels that you saw with the story of our faith's great patriarch Abraham and kind of sketch that out a little bit? Because I think that foundation is important before we go further with piety. Oh, yeah. Well,
0: it was something that the, that the early Christians picked up on, too. Remember in Acts chapter 9, when Peter is reintroduced after the episode with Saul, who becomes Paul, you know. What's the first thing we see him do in Acts chapter 9? He heals a guy named Aeneas. And what's the guy named Aeneas suffering from? He can't walk. <laughs> this is a, such a huge setup, right? What, what follows is you know Cornelius calling right. Peter to his household, a Roman centurion who is from the Italian cohort. I mean, this this is like a Roman Roman. <laughs> That's right. Get any more Roman than this guy Cornelius, and he's lost faith in his traditional way of life. That's why he's a God-fearer. That's why he's honored by the Jews. That's why he's so interested, because he's become a believer in the God of Israel. Right. But this whole thing is, what you have there is a picture of, of Rome. Now, if someone were to say, "Is are you saying that that episode is just a literary device and didn't actually happen with with Aeneas? I actually believe that God is so great that God can set up an actual Versical person for the purpose of being a literary device.
1: (laughs) Amen. He's the best storyteller, right? (laughs) right. I believe that there
0: was a guy named Aeneas. He was healed and it was all for being in the book. (laughs) That's right.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: So anyway, you have this marvelous setup, but what happens there, of course, in Acts 9 and 10 is you have these two households, the household of Aeneas and the household of Abraham. And of course, because of uh, Mosaic law, Peter can't bring himself to have fellowship and eat with Gentiles, unclean people. And then he sees the sheep and the unclean animals and the declaration, what God has made, what I've made clean, don't call unclean. That kind of thing. But in the background is you have these two households and they have mutually exclusive claims because both believe that they've been called to rule the world. Mm, that's <laughs> right. Been, yeah. The world. Right. So in, uh, to give the background to the, uh, the story of the Aeneas, aeneas after he leaves troy with his father on his back his father dies on the way but as they're making their way toward italy there's an episode where aeneas actually descends into elysium the land of the dead or the blessed dead and he sees his father and while he's there with his father his father prophesies that the roman people will rule the world and that that's their heritage their, that's right they've been given the world by zeus yeah so it's their mission so and so and then and then Aeneas is given. You know, armor that's been forged by a Vulcan of all people, you know, as a favor to his wife, who happens to be Aeneas' mother. There's a lot of soap opera, as you know, and... <laughs> <laughs>
1: In these mythologies, yeah, <laughs> v- Venus is your mother. Alone is uh, is <laughs> that's, right, that's, right. that's right. so she likes her son,
0: and she wants him to be to, to be well dressed. So, yeah. so she arranges for him to have this it, amazing armor. I mean, the armor is it really is amazing. I mean, it's got flames shooting out. You know, of the, of the helmet is just awesome. Yeah, and then uh, he's got this shield, and on the shield is emblazoned the history of the Roman people going forward. So Aeneas doesn't even understand what's on his shield, but it, on his shield is Caesar. You know, on his shield is all the great Roman generals you know, that are going to wage war for Rome and subdue the world and bring peace to the world, the Pax Romana. That's the calling of Rome, to bring peace to the world, unify the human race under a single political entity. So now you got these uh, ordinary Jews who have a different story. And their story is, you know, the story of Abraham. And Abraham is given a promise. And his promise is not just for a land, but for, you know, something much larger. It's something that we see in the New Testament is a promise that includes the world. And so with regard to that, faithful Jews saw themselves as the heirs of the world in the same way that a Roman would think of himself as the heir of the world. So you have these competing households, these two households, these two polities, these two visions, these two understandings of the cosmos. Now, what what they had in common is they both believed in a cosmos in a way that we don't really think about today. They believed that there was an upstairs and there was someone in charge. They just disagreed about, and with with regard to who was in charge. Right. <laughs> that, that was that was, was disagreement.
1: Yeah. <laughs> So you have these two visions for the future, and I love the imagery. I mean, the imagery we could talk about all day of of Aeneas putting his father down and bearing up his shield that has, you know, the story of his children and children's children's children. There's all kinds of great stuff there. It's interesting, you know, you look at some of the the clash even in the early church that we sometimes miss, right? When you you hear the early Christians declare Jesus is Lord— it's a declaration that Caesar is not Lord because Caesar is Lord was the anthem, right? That's what you, you needed in order to be, be uh, buying and selling in the marketplace and all that kind of stuff. So there really is a clash between these households. But the understanding of, of piety was a sort of foundational thing that the Christians, I think, picked up on. And that would be the understanding to which Paul is preaching and teaching. And so he comes into Ephesians, right? And there's, there's that other set of armor, which you go through uh, so well in the book. And I, I loved it. As an English nerd with uh, an English degree hanging on my wall that's doing nothing else but hanging there looking <laughs> nice. <laughs> I loved reading it, and it was very, very enjoyable. But talk a little bit about—so you have this clash between the house of Abraham and the house of Aeneas— And in that clash, you have a shared understanding, as you said, of what the cosmos was and uh, sort of a a man's responsibility, if he is to be a pious man, to that cosmos. And just to jog your memory, I, I loved the phrase you used, how kind of the man of the house is the middle manager of the cosmos, right? That he stands as this representative. So take that a little bit and talk to us a, a little bit about why, when we're reading Paul, we miss so much about this because we don't have the same foundation.
0: When you noted earlier that in the early church, the statement, Jesus is Lord, was a very incendiary statement. It was something that had political ramifications. That's lost in us. Yeah, We think about this in t- terms of Jesus has got, you know, he's sitting on the throne of my heart kind of stuff. Right. Now that's important. You know, yeah, I'm not I'm t- I'm trying to play that down. You know, Jesus is actually not just in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. He, he's sitting at the right hand of the father. And that is that's huge. Oh. So within the Roman world, there were images of the emperor seated in heavenly places, surrounded by, you know, heavenly attendants, the gods. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know. So it, what it implied is that he was the son of God and that he was ruling. So when, when Christians said Jesus seceded at the right hand of the father, it was a direct challenge to the emperor. Right. But uh, getting to your point about piety, Christians and Romans, again, in terms of the basic structure of things, didn't disagree so much. It was what, what they disagreed about was who was in charge and, what, and who was to be glorified. That was the issue. So a father in a Roman household was a a middle manager. He represented heaven. He represented the city in his household. And then he represented his household to heaven and to the city. Same thing in the Christian world. A father represented his family in the church. That was this Christian polis, Right. right? That's why they were the ones who were supposed to speak. They were speaking for their houses. So like when we think about, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the direction or the directives uh, to women not to speak in church, it wasn't a misogynist kind of thing. It'd be the sort of thing, like if I went to the state house in Connecticut and I just sat down next to my representative for the town of town and then he rose his hand, raised his hand, you know, to speak on behalf of our town. I pulled his hand down and I got up and said, you know, hey, no, (laughs) right. You know, I want you to know I don't agree with this guy. Right. In my I'm going to speak for myself here. They'd they'd escort me out, yeah. and no one would think anything of it. They right. would say, "Well, hey, man, the guy was out of order." Right. What Paul is saying is, is women, you're out of order. This is a household that is being represented by your husband. You know, if you want to talk to him about what your household should do, talk to him someplace else. <laughs> you know, and, and work it out. That's right. So that when he comes in, he he reflects your insight as well as his own, you know, that's so forth. That's right. So that all has to be kept in mind and nobody gets that today because we have this individualistic, you know, this understanding that, you know, there's this immediacy. What does the word immediate mean? It means no mediator. We have no mediator between us and the pastor or between us and, you know, whatever you want, direct access, no mediators. Uh, we don't like middlemen, but in the cosmos, there are lots of middlemen, (laughs) <laughs> the cosmos is all about the middlemen. That's right. And, and so there's Christ at the, at the top, and he's bringing everything into subjection. All the middlemen are being brought into subjection. And how this has a very masculine and sort of virile component, and that's been lost. Well, let me put it this way. If you, if you think about the film Gladiator, which a lot of guys, guys love, yep. I mean, it's op- that opening scene is often. Maximus was the ideal of piety in right. the empire. That's right. He loved his wife, he loved his child, he did his duty, you know, he just he just wanted to do his job and go home. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, that yeah. was all he wanted. He just
1: wanted to go right. home. <laughs> yeah, there's even a, an element there. Right when uh, Caesar tries to give Maximus sort of the reins of the republic, there, there's something to that, right? As the soldier who had done his duty, who is who is going to go and retire to farm life, would be given to him, so that it wasn't taken over by bureaucrats, right? Yeah, am yeah. I getting that right? I, I think there's.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and, and that's and that, what you see actually sort of recapitulated there is the story of Cincinnatus. Hmm. who it was you know, a great uh, figure during the, the Republic before the Empire. Okay. So this is back like 400 years before the Empire. So people thought about Cincinnatus much the way you know, we think about George Washington. Because actually, people thought, called George Washington the American Cincinnatus. Oh, because, because when he was done, he'd served as president, he said, I want to go home now. Hmm. And they said, no, well, we want to make you king. He said, no, I want to go <laughs> home <laughs> Right. So you like Cincinnatus. And so, like, when I was at the Smithsonian, there's actually a statue there of George Washington. I, th- I think it was made in the 19th century, and he's in a Roman toga, and he's seated, and it says the American Cincinnati."s
1: Interesting. There
0: you go. So, but, but th- basically the idea was that you didn't want bu- a, a bureaucracy. You didn't want a standing army. You didn't want vested interests in a kind of... Uh, you know centralizing power right the romans did everything they could think of to try to keep that from happening it eventually happened yep. and, and it, the same thing's true with us <laughs> we did everything we could <laughs> to keep that from happening yep. and it happened so in a sense what i'm trying to do with my book is is at a couple of levels you know one is there's there's a, a need for a, a recovery within the church of piety you know in the sense the classical sense but we also need it in our republic. We need to return to, uh, we need a revival of those ways of thinking and living that were, you know, actually the case when we had a republic and not an empire. We have an empire. We, we really do. Yeah, and, every, you know, we don't want to call it that. But the American empire rules the world. It's the Pax Americana right, right now. That's right. And uh, it's full of corruption. It's full of nuttiness. It's full of
1: serving. It's full of decadence it's it, things are bad yeah there you go <laughs> just to get really practical here I think um, one of the things that I kind of took away from your book is the sense that the Christian faith so if judgment begins in the house of the Lord right and I think it was Francis Schaefer who said that the the culture is the report card of the church and so we've had this Christian faith, that has been primarily individualistic. It's about me and Jesus and, and no one else, right? It's almost we've gone back to the sort of monastic faith that Martin Luther was trying to escape from. And with that comes this, this rise of a theology of escapism, that this world is, is going to hell in a handbasket, that the faithful are going to be taken off of it before it does. And this is the theology that we have been living in, primarily for, for the better part of a century in the Western world, and so with that comes a sort of, as long as I'm okay with Jesus, then life is good. But the recovery of piety would say that, no, 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 you owe debts, right? Jesus paid your once and for all debt before the father, But you are responsible to your king, right? To your country, to your church, to your neighborhood, to your family, to your children, to your children's children. And there's this sort of selflessness at the center of piety that I think was very convicting for me when I read the book. And I I, I started looking at my neighborhood differently and my neighbors differently because I represent my household between, in in a lot of ways, between them and God, right? There is a gospel that needs to get to them. And as a, a man trying to be pious in my neighborhood, I'm responsible for that so are there some practical implications that you found as as this has been you know rummaging around in your mind since you've been writing this book with your because you're a pastor uh with your people what are are some of the practical implications that you've seen
0: well yeah that's a great summary and i think you've done a really good job with it i think you know when we think about debts you know christ has paid the debt for us but we have been purchased we belong to him now that's right so he's paid the debt. But that doesn't mean we're, we're debt free. I mean, right. we owe him everything, right? Yeah. So, and then that this sort of uh, it should seep out into all these other relationships. If you really appreciate that, and you and you recognize the world that we're blessed to live in as a place to exercise dominion in, to the glory of God, and that it has a future. You know, when we think about Romans chapter eight. I don't know what those you know people who think that the world is a you know going. Into the trash bin, you know. Do with Romans eight, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Couldn't tell you. <laughs>
0: That's right. So it has a future, and obviously there's a new heaven and a new earth. So there's a transformation, right? And that transformation is not up to you and me. Nevertheless, we're to be faithful, you know. In the meantime, and work to proclaim Christ in every sphere of life, as Abraham Kuyper, you know, beautifully, you know, sort of lays out. Mm-hmm and to declare to people, not that Christ will be Lord, (laughs) but that he is. That's right. You know, and it's because of who he is and what, what he did. But in terms of what that means in, you know, in our lives, I think where I've begun, you know, my work and sort of working this out is in the household because I think, you know, that's the the most immediate, you know, if you think concentric circles, That's the most immediate sphere in which I can exercise dominion, godly dominion. Now, of course, there's me, you know, my own life, bringing my life into order and subject to Christ. But then what's next? Then, you know, we've got the household and then we think about the church, then we think about the larger world. And so in my book, Household and Work for the Cosmos, the last part of the book, you may recall, gets into the principalities and powers a little bit, not much. My new book on Bombadil, actually, we'll get into that. It's actually sort of, you know, people wouldn't necessarily see it, see it that way. But I when I think about Bombadil, I think that Bombadil, and I really do believe this is what Tolkien was up to, and he gives some hints in his letters. He was trying to show what Adam's lordship would have looked like if he had not fallen. Hmm. You know, who are the rings? What we, what we see is we have competing visions of dominion. Right. Saruman and Saran are domination and we have like Aragorn and Gandalf, but actually most sort of paradoxically and completely Bombadil Hmm. at the very end of the Lord of the Rings. When, when Gandalf's work is done, he says, I need to go visit Bombadil and have a long talk.
1: Right
0: (laughs) now. What's that all intended to do? You know, what does that imply? Well, when it's all done, when the the victory is completely won and everything has been resolved, we re- reach, reach denouement, the, 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 the denouement, as we say. We, you know, we English, we you know, we take a French word and we make it you know an English word. <laughs> <laughs> but what we, what we get is you get the resolution. Now, and this is why people say, "Well, you know, heaven be boring," you know, because everything. No, it'll actually look a lot like Bombadil. <laughs> it'll look like that. And it looked like, you know, Bombadil and Goldberry. They're having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> so good, in fact. yeah, That's, that's right. But you, know, you notice with the Bombadil stories, Bombadil is not irresponsible. He delivers the, the hobbits twice, once from the, Old Man Willow and once from the Barrow White. Right. That Barrow White scene is reminiscent of the resurrection. If you go back and read that story with the resurrection in mind, there are all sorts of clues that tell you that's what Tolkien had in mind. That's awesome. You know, when the stones roll away and Bombadil, hit, his yeah. head pops in and the sun is rising behind him. All, all kinds of stuff. Then he, he casts the Barrow White into hell. Go back and look at that scene and see how he does it. It reveals that Bombadil is the most powerful creature in Middle-earth. <laughs> he, he's more powerful than Saran. He has the ability to damn a soul to hell. Right. And that brings up the idea that I think is often lost on mm-hmm. us is that we will judge the world. Paul says this in an offhanded way. He's chastising Christians. He's saying, yeah. you go going to court? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know, you're going to be judging angels? Right. And he says that like, like it's obvious. And, and you and I read that and say, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where's that letter? <laughs> <laughs> so where did he lay this all out? Yeah. I want to read that book. Yeah. What it implies, of course, is that Christ's dominion, because we are his body, means that we have dominion. And that we are joint heirs with him, and that we will exercise authority in ways that are just and really difficult for us to uh, fathom. But in the meantime, we do our best. Like little kids who put on you know the, their parents' shoes. Yep. You know, they walk <laughs> around and pretend to be dad and mom. Yep. I think that's where we are right now as Christians. But we, we're growing up into Christ, but we're also growing up into ourselves. There's a day when we will be able to fill those shoes mm. when we're glorified.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I, uh, I was thinking when I was reading your book and you start to compare the armor in Ephesians 6 to uh, Aeneas' armor, it's great. I don't want to spoil it all because I want uh, our listeners to read your book because it is, it is quite phenomenal. It made me think of, I guess, my place in the story. And this is kind of where you're, you're going with this is there's there's this larger story and I think one of the, again, problems with modern Christianity is we're all trying to write our own story, right? All the, all the books out right now are like, you know, radical and, you know, you know uh, what's the other one? Not a fan, right? Get in the game. And, and it's all this sort of like do big things for Jesus. And I think where we lose the mark is that we're not the hero of this story. Our job is to be faithful with the small part of the story that, that we have. We're, we're one of those many children emblazoned on Aeneas' shield. There's a progression and it's moving somewhere. And we need to learn how to be faithful within the spheres that we've been given. And so as men trying to be pious, that starts, as you said, in our household. And you talk a little bit, uh, this is specifically going back to your talk at Grace Agenda, Make Men Pious Again. And you talk about recovering a productive household. And you do a great job in the book kind of talking about what the household used to be. And as wonderful and idealistic as that is, we're not there anymore. So what does it look like to recover productivity and some manner of autonomy for which we can be responsible in our own homes? What does that look like right now, do you think?
0: Yeah, I think we, we have to proceed with small steps. I, you know, I, I agree with you. We can't get crazy about this. This is, not, this is not Wendell Berry. You know, we're not going back to plowing with, with mules and that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. You know, I've had a number of fun conversations with Doug Wilson about this, but also with Alan Carlson and some other guys. And the kind of the thing that a number of us are seeing is, is that we're kind of coming out of a phase of history that required us all to leave home to survive. Hmm. And we're entering into a new phase of, of the economy where we actually have to go home to survive. And here's what I mean. I'm looking right now for a commuter bike. This is kind of funny, you know. I might say, "How does this relate?" Well, I'm, I'm looking for a commuter bike, so you know, I, I've been going to places, you know, like Dick Sporting Goods and and the local sporting goods store and different things, and the selections are terrible, right? You know, what, and, what I, and overpriced. That's right. What I discover is I can get the bike I want online. Yeah, for less money and and exactly what I want. And I've got this huge selection. So that's why a lot of the retail world is going broke. It's because there are people actually running businesses out of their home that are tied into Amazon or whatever. I've got, I've got a friend who rents a house to a guy who specializes in selling Legos online. And the guy's making six figures selling Legos online. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, you're kidding me. He said, no, it's, real. it's out of his basement. So how does Toys R Us compete with that? This right. guy is a specialist in like this one kind of Lego kind of thing, but it's his own concern. He controls it. Now, yeah, he's working with Lego, the factory and stuff like that. But I tell you what, if you ever watch any videos about Lego, the factory, there are fewer and fewer people that actually work at Lego, the factory. It's a robot. Yeah. So what we're seeing, I think, is we went through a period of time where productive property, proprietorship, all that stuff was diffused it was everywhere. Everybody had their own thing going and then everybody had to give it up because you know, you could get greater efficiencies, more productivity if we all came together. Like I I live in New England we have all these old mill towns and all the mill towns are in these really funky places. The reason is it was where the water was and where the water was moving at sufficient speed to drive the machinery in the factories. Hmm. So we end up with these funky little towns. Now, people actually had to move to those places. Now all those places have been turned into lofts and, you know, it's really cool apartments. <laughs> so no one actually, you know, works right. in those places. <laughs> right. But people are actually running businesses out of their houses. Like in my church, and I've got a number of people in my church, the employer wants me to be at home because it lowers costs. So there are all these things that are going on in our society to sort of redistribute the economy back to the household. There still need to be certain places where, you know, we still need electricity and we need, you know, water and, you know, we need central services, or, you know, and different things. But we're at a very different time, even with power. You think about it. I find it easy to believe that in 50 years we'll be, each of us will have autonomous sources of power hmm. with our solar power or the wind or whatever. Yeah. You know, the efficiencies are getting better. Things are looking better. You know, everything's costs are coming down. All these different things. So, with that in mind, we're in a position if we if we recover the household economy we need to be the, ahead of the game. So, I've been talking with a uh, with an, an architect friend of mine, and we've been talking about maybe putting together a book of how to convert houses back to uh, working houses. You know, away from you know man caves in the basement. You know, in show kitchens yeah. <laughs> where no one actually cooks. Right, exactly. Yeah. But we've got great appliances yeah. to uh, a place that actually works like it used to work, hmm. you know, but uh, in, a, in a high-tech world, in a different kind of economy. Now, in sort of bringing the kids into this is the challenge because, you know, back in the day when it was the farm, a little five-year-old kid could go out and collect the eggs. Right. How do we get young children involved in, like, dads on the computer all day? There are some challenges, but I'm realistic about it. And I think that the prospects are actually better than they've been in a long time for bringing the household back to being a productive concern.
1: Well, and it's interesting that uh, I was having a conversation with a, a friend not that long ago who lives across the street from me. They're not Christians, and they're considering homeschooling so they have a they have a little 2-year-old and they're they're considering homeschooling but not for religious reasons as most Christians do but simply because of the way in which the public school system is pushing parents out of the equation And not because they disagree with sort of the LGBT agenda, which is what you hear all the time at Christian homeschool conferences, but they just don't like that. They want to be involved in their kids' education. And then on top of that, just the the actual quality of education is pretty low these days. So they're they're going into the idea of, you know, we're looking into private education, but we're we're even considering homeschooling. And it was one of the first conversations I had with a a non-Christian or Muslim who is considering this. And I just find it interesting that I think even among the secular world, there's a sort of a longing to recover some sort of productivity at home or some sort of centralization of the family because it's been under attack for so long, right? And so I think you even see the secularists starting to push back or at least the level headed ones. Yeah, well, I
0: I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's only there's only so many times that homeschoolers can win the national spelling bee before people start to know. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So I think there's the, the performance, you know, homeschoolers are getting into Harvard, Yale, you know, all those all these places. No one even blinks anymore. No. Back in the day, you know, I remember when it was still kind of funky and weird to homeschool, you know, the people who pioneered it, the people who really did the, the hard work in the early days were the hippies. Yeah. This is something that people don't remember, yeah. but it was the hippies that wanted to, to homeschool because they thought that the schools were too conservative. <laughs> <laughs> but like when I lived in Cambridge, I lived in Cambridge between Harvard and MIT for about a decade. There were two homeschooling associations in Cambridge, the Wacko Progressives and the the Christian
1: one. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and we both thought the public schools in Cambridge were off. <laughs> yeah. So you played sports against each other.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I hear what you're saying. And I, and, I and you know, when we think about the household is is a – you know, is something that's a part of the creation. It's a creational ordinance.
1: Yeah,
0: it was something that we as Christians and non Christians share in common. Now, occasionally, you'll get some crazy people who want to live in a kibbutz or you know believe that you know we should all be communists and abolish the family. But no one really takes those people seriously. And, and and when and when they actually try to implement this, the stuff that they talk about, it just is it's ugly and horrendous, and people are traumatized and yep. then it goes home again. <laughs> so uh, I think that you're right. I think that this is a place where we can make common cause with some of our neighbors, understanding that there are going to be some places where we disagree. They're going to order their households by their God. Mm-hmm. We're going to order our households by the, by the Lord and we'll see who wins. You know, right. it's, just,
1: it's- yeah. It's, it's Elijah versus the prophets of Baal, right? <laughs> Except we, we might not take them down to the river and kill them afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you know what? I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think uh, I I would really encourage any of our listeners who are intrigued by it to pick up Pastor Chris's book "Household in the War for the Cosmos" because it was uh, it's very thought provoking. And I think it sort of brings you to a precipice where uh, suddenly it kind of opens up this this new thing for you. And I promise you'll be, you'll be thinking about where that goes for a long time afterwards. So thanks for writing the book. I, I really, really uh, appreciated it. I'm really looking forward to the Tom Bombadil book. And I'd, I'd love for you to just take a second as well to plug Theology Podcast, because that's uh, that's part of the Fight, Laugh, Feast network. And I've really been enjoying that as well. So do you want to plug that for just a moment?
0: Sure, I' would happy to. It's, it's a lot of fun. We do it every week. Um, Tom Price is a professor at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and uh, he's a systematic theologian and an ethicist. He's a, he's an Oxford guy. He uh, has his PhD from Oxford, and then Glenn Sunshine is a uh, an historian, and he used to teach at Calvin College. He's now at Central Connecticut State University. He uh, is a also a fellow, senior fellow at the Colton Center. So three of us get together every week, and we just kind of talk. We actually sit in a in a pub, and we have our microphones, and we don't do any prep. It's just sort of all spontaneous. We just decided we're just going to let it go, let it fly, see what happens. We've been really surprised. I think we have like ten thousand listeners. That's this awesome. is what we've been told. You know, we, it's hard for us to believe, but we we have almost every day. You know, we're getting emails and questions and stuff like that. We're terrible. <laughs> awful at, at kind of keeping up with it because we, you know, we, we have other things we do and we don't have anybody working with us on this. So folks need to be patient with us. But essentially one of us takes it, you know, the day and we introduce the topic. Uh, so last week, it, uh, or actually this week is divine simplicity. So that was Tom. He was talking about, you know, divine simplicity. The week before we did a thing on in intersectionality and that was my week. And then, the week before that we did something on the black death that was going week so it's just whatever kind of like we want to talk about whatever the, the you know the, the person who's the you know in charge of the day whatever he says we're going to talk about we talk about and then one of us will make a little speech and then we just all riff off of
1: it yeah
0: and, and that's all it is and it, it's generally about 50 minutes to an hour maybe we go a little over when we can't shut up
1: <laughs> yeah I've really enjoyed it and what i I think one of the things I enjoy about it you're all uh, you're all very educated men and uh, have done a lot of reading and I appreciate that. and it kind of ties back to something that you say at the beginning of your book, and that is that we as Christians ought to plunder secular literature in the same way that the israelites plundered egypt on their way out of town um, that we ought to be able to plunder pagan libraries and i appreciate that even as you guys are talking through history and your your knowledge of of history and literature and everything is is quite substantial and uh, and just seeing how you bring everything back to really your view of the cosmos and and the world in which god's created and all truth is god's truth so i really appreciate it so just thank you for doing that and for making it available for us all
0: Well, you're welcome. It's a lot of fun, and we're glad that you like it. And I'll make sure to mention your show to the other guys and uh, encourage them to listen to it.
1: Yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much. So C.R. Wiley, you can find him at uh, C.R. com. Theology Podcast, which we just talked about, is on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Grab his book so that you're caught up before the book on—what's the title? Am I allowed to know the title of the Tom Bombadil book?
0: Well, I mean, it all depends on whether the Tolkien estate will allow us to call it what I'd like to call it. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, because that, what I want to call it is in the house of Tom Bombadil, which is yep. actually a chapter in Lord of the Rings you know, the Fellowship of the that's Ring. Right. Yeah. yeah. So they might take umbrage. They might say, "No, you need you need to call it something different." But anyway, that's the working title, and it, and it probably won't be out till the summer.
1: Okay. Well, we look forward to that. And in the meantime, any of the listeners who missed your other books, grab Man of the House and Household and War for the Cosmos. And I think you've done some uh, some other books. Have you done kids' books as well?
0: Yeah, I've got a, a young adult series. And uh, the first book of that series is called The Poor Boy. It's fiction. And I've been working on children's story uh, for a while. I'm an, ar- I'm an artist. And so I've been working on the illustrations for that. And so... I don't know when I'll ever get it done, but I, it's I kind of chip away at it here and there.
1: Yeah, awesome. so
0: yeah, yeah, fiction is another thing that I enjoy.
1: Hopefully, uh, this just introduces our listeners to you. I've been very edified by getting to know you and following your ministry and uh, and everything you're doing. So, thanks for taking the time to be here. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, hope to talk to you again sometime soon.
0: Well, thanks, Nate. Thanks for having me on.